Hey guys, today we have Graham Tuttle on the podcast. He's also known as the Barefoot Sprinter. Graham has come out to Super Training Gym and he's been visiting with Mark. Uh, he's also on Mark Bell's Power Project. You can listen to him there. He's been doing a lot of videos with Mark and Ensema about running, but he's also been helping me fix my feet. He's been helping me pull the sled uh, with no shoes on and different things like that to get my feet moving. Because if we can get my feet moving, then we can fix the ankles, we can fix the calves, we can fix the knees, we can fix the hips, we can fix the low back, we can fix the shoulder, right? And Graham has uh, different programs for all these things that just help like fix up the body. So we're going to get into a great conversation with the Barefoot Sprinter. We also talked to him a lot about how he creates his vision for TikTok because it is its own art. And we also uh, got into a lot of stuff about more like philosophy, you know, the, the philosophy of pain and uh, how we think about ourselves and how we need to sort of love ourselves more in order to get more out of what we're actually doing in the gym. So this is a deep one, but I also think it's a good one and it's a great listen. So get ready for the Barefoot Sprinter. Morning out of Sacramento, California. Woo! What you gonna do? Better. Stronger. Son of a bitch. Faster. Oh, yeah. All right, so today we have a, a special treat. We don't normally have uh, a lot of guests on here, but today we are because it's important, and I think it's a lot of great information I've already learned from this guy. We have Graham Tuttle, the Barefoot Sprinter. Is yeah. that your Instagram? It, it just, um, I, I guess Batman is, um, what is it? Bruce Wayne has Batman, Clark Kent has Superman, so I'll be the Barefoot Sprinter. It's my pseudonym. Barefoot Sprinter, which has a lot of views on TikTok and Instagram. I've seen a couple of your videos. Like you had one, I think, 11, 10 or 11 million. Yeah. Well, so that that's an interesting thing when it comes to social media. Like there's this component of, because like, first and foremost, it has to be valuable, right? It has to be something that could be entertaining, could be a value of any number of things that people find valuable. Um, even if it's just like a meme that people want to stay involved, like the trend or something like that, which is not inherently valuable in and of itself other than the cohesive, connective like measure of a society. Um, but what I, it's not just enough to be valuable. It also has to be wrapped in something that looks good or that's attractive or that's uh, entertaining. As you know from being a documentary and filmmaker, it's like – yeah, what's the message here? There's lots of stuff that's worth telling people about, but it's not the same as just say, okay, here's this thing I found that's valuable, but it also has to be wrapped up in a way like using the language of the community in a way that they can understand it in a way that advances their thought, but gives them a little bit of a adjustment on builds on some level of knowledge, but then creates some new thing they didn't know. Because if, like, for example, you make a documentary that water is wet, it's like, oh, yeah, we all know that, right? There's nothing new and there's nothing that says that your framework for how you're perceiving this thing isn't accurate and that's why you have this problem. So I present with the problem. So kind of taking that, like, what makes effective writing, what makes effective speaking, it's like, okay, what makes effective content from a social media perspective? And as you know this, it's like, you know, what does it look like to be this is value, this is entertaining, and this is also something that is you've got wrong, basically. basically. Yeah, so before we even talk about running, that's like one thing that I really identified with you early on. I know I was joking the other day, we, have, we had David Weck in here, mm -hmm. and you're like directing this TikTok video, basically, and you were like so passionate and so into it, and you're like, now you throw this down, and you, I think I even made a joke, and, and like you didn't even acknowledge it, you just kept going, right? Like, because... Uh, you're very into it. And I think that 
and I made a joke, everybody's a director, but yeah. you actually are. Like I haven't seen um, – and maybe I see this a little bit with um, Ben Patrick also. But it's like you guys are creating something that is its own work of art. And I know that might sound crazy um, for to say like a TikTok video is a work of art. But when you actually break it down and look at it and look how much time actually goes into yeah. making a TikTok video, a lot of times it's hours and hours and hours. Oh Sometimes it's days. For 15 seconds, yeah. Yeah. What is your process like? So one of the things I find is – well, the reason I get so hands-on with this is, is – um, as you know, like so, this is what is interesting. If you look at like the actual production of a movie, which is really a glorified like people doing something in front of a camera, and then you can go. There's like the the script writer, there's the casting director, there's the producer, there's the video the videographer, there's the actors, there's the uh, editor, there's the sound effect. Like all these people come together and they have a shared vision. And so, one of the things is like if you have a cohesive unit of people that can sh- see that shared vision, then they can think as a as a unit. But when you get some of these like smaller, like smaller units in a sense, and I'm working with just like people I've never met before in a sense. So like, is it some other content creator or coach? And I go and I meet them. I don't really know them that well, but it's like I'm gonna bring an idea. But there's it's part of it is like you, you I'll get hit. So first is like, what's the value? Why is this important? What's the message you're trying to say here? And then like like the big promise, break that apart into the two to three to four pieces of valuable like sub headlines. And then, then you think about how does this play out? Like what's the visual here? How can I make this interesting? And you think about this from the perspective of something always has to be happening because we live in the attention economy, right? So it's like in some settings, there's an interesting long form like podcast and documentaries. You can get people to sit and do that. But even then there's an art to that as well. Like Joe Rogan talks about this. It's like there's an art to speaking and having conversations that you know you flow through these things and you, you walk people through the highs and the lows of energetic you know, longer series, but something like TikTok, where there's a lot of people who are really smart, much smarter than me, much better coaches, much more knowledgeable. But can you bring that in a way that you get nine seconds tops, maybe even half a second, where if someone's scrolling and it's not just like, is this valuable? It's is this valuable compared to the infinite amount of possibilities that could be out there? Like the next thing I scroll up one second, like I'm bored, and you go on, and it's like. It's a tough audience out there. So part of that is saying like you have to really go and say what's the action here? Do I lose attention? Is this getting the message apart? Can I take this sentence? Now can I break this apart into a more impactful – can I create instability with the language I'm using? Uh, so the words matter. And so if I were to do it myself, I would sit down and say what's the the value? What's the big promise here? What's the thing that maybe that people haven't thought about or they need to be reminded of? Because people need to be reminded more than they need to be educated in, in most senses. Um, and then you say, what are the three pieces I would use to like, if I could only do a Twitter summary of this thing, why is this important to you? The one, two, three pieces, what's something they say, Hey, you know, if I were in thinking in their head, they would want to, the real secret to virality is to send, create something that then someone says, I saw this thing the other day and it said, you know, you shouldn't wear shoes all the time because it does. Um, and if they can't do that, they're going to feel dumb and they're not going to say it. But if I can say, oh, because it lets your feet spread out or, you know, it lets you feel the ground or it yeah. keeps you rooted like a tree or something like that. Is, oh, how can I do this with some level of like direct language that they can speak and then use that? And then how can I paint that in a way that creates action, that creates drama, that creates some level of character development? Also, what you're saying is that the person that watched it 
can actually summarize it in like a sentence. And that's yes. really important. So I said, what's this post about? And I'm like, well, it's about running with no shoes because you need to let your toes spread out. And then somebody goes, oh, okay, I can further investigate mm. that now. Yeah. Uh, rather than what's this TikTok? Oh, it's kind of about running, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's very specific. Yeah. And a person can actually pinpoint, you know, what the post was about and what it meant. Yeah. You know, and um, most of your posts are obviously on running, barefoot mm-hmm. sprinter. What, how did this whole thing start from the running to becoming a TikTok, you know, sensation to like, how did that all, how did it all start? Uh, you know, happen. Um, so really, and this kind of goes back to this whole process of, um, I was listening to a discussion today talking about the the difference between professional and amateur and amateur is like, amo, I think is the root of the word, but it's the one to love the ones like the amateur, like the amateur documentaries or filmmakers or Pete or coaches, whatever the ones that just do it because they love it. Like a hobby comes to this, like it's a job you can't get fired from. And so the professionals are the ones that show up and do it for for money in a sense. And so, mm-hmm. you know, some of the best people in the world are amateurs because they just do it because it's either personally interesting or they love it. So in many ways, you know, I went through school. I went through – I was – I just showed up and, I, you know, I didn't miss school. I just had decent grades. I was not unintelligent. Um, but I really kind of struggled to get, get traction with anything at school because it was so like you sit down and you pay attention and you regurgitate. And it just – I had so many questions that, you know, that type of like curiosity doesn't get um, – encouraged much in school. So I found a lot of joy and happiness in movement and sports, being outside and playing. I think most young boys do. And then that that became a corollary to like, okay, I go to college. Like, what am I going to do? And so I bounced around like medical school, physical therapy school, because I'm like, I like working with people. The body's interesting and I want to help people and do that stuff. But I don't know what that looks like. And, you know, I was thinking about jobs. I was thinking people, most people pick jobs based off of the three matrices. Is it consistent? Like, is it secure? Will it likely be there? Does it make a lot of money? And does it sound good? Like, is it reputable? So even even just like, I'm going, I'm in pre-med. It's like, oh, that sounds good. Like, how many kids are in pre-med that never do it? Yeah. Because doctors always need doctors. They make a lot of money. And there's always going to be, you know, it's, it's uh, it sounds good to say. It's highly reputation. So, you know, in that sense, it was, wasn't until I was really struggling to land with something and I kind of got encouraged from the career services to go to exercise sports science. And so I started on this path of I'll do physical therapy because, again, that makes money. It's consistent. It's repeatable. Yeah. And then I went and did some shadowing and I'm like, this is so boring. The people only show up because insurance is paying for it. It always reminds me of that um, Marshawn Lynch. I'm just here so I don't get fined. It's yeah. like they're just here because insurance is paying for it. They don't really care. And the physical therapists have a little playbook. They got taught an anatomical view of the body, which is – you know, we'll give you a pain pill and then we'll give you a shot. We'll do some manual stuff, maybe some needling, and then we'll do a procedure. And they don't think much outside of that because they only have so many sessions. And there are great physical therapists and chiros yeah. out there. And when people are, are really into it, it works really well, right? Exactly. Like, so that's not discount at all. Well, right? but like, no, I think it's one of those things where like it's easy to blame them, the practitioner, but really they're strangled by the insurance companies in a sense. If yes. I go and say you've got a knee surgery, okay, well, your ACL, that means the physical, the insurance company is allotted 24 sessions for that. And it's like, okay. And they're actually not allowed to touch on other things and work on other things outside of that because it's like the insurance doesn't cover I, that. I had a double hip replacement surgery, pretty serious. Mm-hmm. You know, my um, scars were like patches of leather on my the side of my butt. And I said to my doctor, like, don't I need physical therapy? He's like, oh, you'll heal up fine. And I'm like, well, listen, I, w- I want physical therapy. Yeah. So then I had to fight for it to, with the doctor. And then once the doctor approved it, I had to fight with the insurance company yep, so that they it. would pay for it. And then they wouldn't pay for all of it. So I did it anyway because I knew it would be good for me. Yep. And actually um, what I did, I think, actually 
is the reason I can squat and deadlift and move today is I had a friend of mine who was a physical therapist who basically would like just basically rub on the scars until it hurt so bad that I couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, he's like light touch at first, but then, but every week we did that and we worked it to the point where like my scars, they're not stiff anymore Mm -hmm. at all. And they would still be like that tough rock, you know, if, if I didn't do that. And it's just crazy that no one, no one thought that that would be good for me to move after I had double hip replacement surgery. There's, and there's layers to that, right? Because there's, it takes a perspective of the body, which is like the body. I mean, there's a whole outdated thing where there's anatomical structures that are stacked in this compressive model that basically like a Roman, uh, you know, Roman temple where there's like a pillar, the roof is on top of pillars, which are into the ground. But in reality, the body flows and works in this huge like, network of uh, fascial tissue, which is the connective tissue, the bones, ligaments, tendons, synovial fluid. It's like it, it's all the stuff and the bodies can t- constantly remodeling and growing and based off of the stresses you get. You get a major injury like a surgery, then you get actual like scars and sutures and uh, hardened tissue. It's like that just gets hardened or you can make that mobile and flexible. And so – but ultimately, it's like you look at that. The doctors have an agreement with the insurance companies based on what blood tests will do, which blows my mind because, I mean, that's one of those things where the average male doesn't get testosterone testing done until their 30s, 40s, until they have symptoms. And uh, I remember I was 23. 324 at the time, maybe 25. I went to physical because it was like the first time I've been in years. I'm like, hey, I'd like to get some blood work done. He's like, you know, he's like, okay, sure, we'll do the regular stuff. I'm like, well, isn't testosterone included in that? And he goes, well, no, we don't like to test unless there's symptoms. And I'm like, how are you going to know that something's off if you don't test until after I'm tired and, and weak? It's like, because how do you know my testosterone wasn't normally lower or higher than yeah. it is? And it blows my mind. And why do you want to get tired or weak? Like, exactly. you, you want to avoid that. So it's like, it's like we're not going to measure – you go and get your oil change and it said, uh, you know, how are my tires looking? I don't know. We don't usually measure tire pressure until after the tire is flat. It's like, wait, yeah. what? You didn't just check that to make sure everything's good? Like it's crazy. But they have this agreement and it's kind of under the table about what they're going to uh, – uh, what they're going to uh, charge for, what they're going to assign. And so they have it all there. And so, you know, when they say, well, you know, the doctors said, well, we don't really want to pay for this stuff. We're going to encourage less physical therapy. We're going to encourage less of these approaches. We're going to push these things more. It's because it's a higher leverage. People forget they're all businesses. And then unfortunately, there's, there's a great quote. It's you can't depend on a man to understand that, which is salary depends on him not understanding. Yeah. And, and they go through these schools where they don't even realize the water they're swimming in is funded by these large insurance companies and medical product companies and these just, you know, like large corporations that have been around. And so by that point, it becomes an entire enterprise where these people who have the best of intentions end up in a system where they're the externality of third, fourth, fifth order effects that basically are boiled down to does this make someone money or not? Yeah. And then you as the individual user gets the brunt end of that where it's like actually you're fucked because it's just not going to like – yeah, it, I mean, it, it is really crazy. Our entire media, the entire media, mainstream media mm-hmm. that people actually listen to is about 75 to 80 percent funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Yep. You can see it. It's evidence when you watch um, Fox News or CNN, every other ad or MSNBC, they're they're all for pharmaceutical yep. stuff, right? And then you think about not just the pharmaceutical companies, but everything that's connected. The insurance companies. Everything's connected. The medical product companies. The uh, the plastic companies that make the stuff, the transportation, the pins, like all of these and things. And people is... actually believe the health information given out on the news. Yep. And you're like, well, how can you believe that when every medical journal is written by Big Pharma mm-hmm. and every uh, ad that we see is from Big Pharma and they're paying for everything like – I would like to think we could still trust it, but you just can't. You, you can't know? be – at the very least, you owe it to yourself as a consumer and individual to be 
skeptical, at least ask questions about like, you know, let me take this with a grain of salt. And yes. You know, buyer beware in some sense. Yeah, so I don't think, want anybody to think like you should be – I don't believe anything they say. But yeah, yeah like look into it. You exactly. Know? And it's no different than you see someone as a broader thing. Look at the supplement industry where someone goes and says, oh, I've got this new um, – I don't know, let's just – for example, like uh, Mind Bullet is a great example. Yeah. It's one of those things where like I tried it and it was one that like if I hear you say like oh, you should try this thing. Oh, who made it? Oh, I made it. It's like the yeah. hard part. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the hard part though is that like you would – it, it, you can't just dismiss it out hand because you would expect every time you see a doctor, it's, oh, well, you know, this is a problem going out there and that's where we made this thing to fix it. And it's like, well, you would expect the person who has the most knowledge and most experience with it to also have the solution. You would expect that. But it's also important to ask the question like, well, how much does this influencer thing if they don't at least talk about other stuff? I happen to have tried Mind Bullet on my own after this, like a few days after he gave it, and I was sitting on a Monday morning. I tried it, and then like an hour later, I'm like, what in the world is this stuff? It was amazing. And so, yeah. like, but it was one of those that you need to be able to do it and test yourself, but maintain some level of obje- objectivity because, you know, it, then you start. That's why I think the idea of like, Ideally, what peer-reviewed is supposed to be, which it's not really, but the crowdsourcing, the reviews is like you're getting – this is what Amazon did better than anybody else. You could go to Walmart and you see a bunch of brands. Like we did the big box thing where there's a bunch of brands, a bunch of options. But what Amazon did that was so unique is the rating system. When I can go in, I don't look primarily at price. I don't look primarily – I mean you factor in price, you factor in the brand. But primarily it's which one has the most reviews. Mm-hmm. And then that's where you get the, the vote of the, the true democracy in some sense, which is what gets tainted if they get like fake people that are on there making fake Some reviews. of the reviews are amazing on Amazon. They're hilarious. Like, I know. <laughs> but that's one of the – when you go and look at that and say, OK, you know, what, are, what do the people say? And yeah. so when you can go and see that, you, for example, let's say you were wearing Google glasses and you could walk in or Amazon or like not Amazon, Walmart. You could go in and, um, and you just look at those three different options instead of saying, well, which one looks fancier? Which one has the right stuff? Which one has the uh, – and the, the the fanciest brand, it's like, well, no, underneath there's the labels, like you know, five, 1,500 five-star reviews. Like that's true democracy in some sense, which is you know a powerful thing. All that to be said is it goes back to this idea of like as, in, as a consumer, it is really, really important for you to think about, okay, what are the incentives for this person? Which ultimately was the decision I made. It's like, okay, when people are thinking about this, like I don't really want to do this. I want to be on the proactive end of helping people. And so – you know, I go through school and I'm at Chapel Hill, UNC, and then I end up uh, graduating early because I didn't really know what I was to do, wanted to do. And the only thing I could – at that point, I'd given up on physical therapy. And I was like, OK, maybe nurse or something like that because I wouldn't let go of this idea of like I need something that's repeatable, that makes money, that um, you know, that's consistent. And so I was like, oh, I'll do a nurse, a nurse practitioner or something like that. And at that time, I was waiting to get into school. I had no chance of getting in because I hadn't done any shadowing. Um, and I applied for the internship at the gym and then he didn't – the gym at school because that's where I worked. The only thing I knew what I loved to do was be at the gym, work out at the gym, train at the gym, work there. Um, and so he said, well, you know, I don't think this is the best fit for you, but there's this other place. And that's when I walked into what was at the time D1 in, in Raleigh. It was D1 Raleigh, North Carolina as a athletic training facility. And so I started working with athletes. I'm like, this is cool because I'd grown up. I had really weak eyes. I'd worn glasses since I was two. So – one of the things you don't get when you wear glasses is the peripheral vision. So you don't get this development of yourself, kinesthetic awareness of where I am yeah. in the environment. So I, I was bigger than I was. I was I could have played football. I was like a big enough, like six six two, you know, two hundred something pound. Well, I put on some weight in college, but I got up to about two hundred fifteen, and I just didn't have the like the awareness because you can't. I tried playing football when I was younger, but you can't play football 
in glasses because when you put your helmet on, it pulls them off. Yeah. And then you, if you get the hook glasses you put on afterwards, you can't see out the side. I would run to the backfield and get smacked. It wasn't pretty. So I, I'd kind of like – I started lifting because that was the first thing. I was like, I can change my body. I can get stronger because I'd run track and cross country. It's like the only teams that don't make cuts and you know, I was even the alternate on that. So I was just kind of like a little bit too big for this, a little bit too small for that, a little bit too uncoordinated for these things. And so I ended up just kind of bumbling around until I figured out, oh, you can lift. And I got like – this like scratches on my itch, it, like the itches. And so – I started doing the bodybuilding and powerlifting, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, these guys are training. You can train to be faster. You can train to jump and run and be athletic. And I'm like, that's amazing. So I, I got really into that. But, you know, after a few years of being a bodybuilder and powerlifter, I was like, ah, my body isn't working as fluidly as I wanted to. And so then I started to get hurt. Yeah. I had a really bad ankle sprain that led to all kinds of things like uh, turf toe, plantar fasciitis, shin splints, chelotinitis, patellotinitis was horrible, hip strains, SI joint dysfunction, low back thrown out, shoulder, I had 11 shoulder dislocations. And so I kind of was like trying to just, you know, 11, 11, it was over a span of four years. And that the biggest thing we can talk about, ridiculous. like the confidence of that, because that's the big thing is you lose confidence in your body after a big injury. But what I ended up realizing is that, you know, I, I took the lens of for a long time, I was like, you try and approach things. Well, I'm just weak here. Or I just need to get stronger here. And you just like you kind of work around it. So a lot of people, let's say your knees hurt, for example. Um, instead of stopping or thinking about something that's different, well, eventually they quit, but they'll just think, well, maybe I'll try a sumo deadlift. Uh, maybe I'll try a box squat. And they, they kind of like back themselves into a corner where it's like this thing hurts, so I'm going to do a little bit less. And then that thing hurts, I'm going to do a little bit less. And you back into where like all you're doing are some box squats and some, you know, assisted bench press and some machines. And it's like you get so stiff and resilient or and like stiff and unable to move that you end up losing your capacity. And so – that's when I started to flip around. I, the one thing that was beneficial was I always worked in a gym that had a physical therapy unit attached to it. So I talked to them, kind of see how they did things. And so just have been in that environment also with the fact that I took like seven anatomy and nine physiology classes in college because exercise sports science had one set. The physical therapy P-Rex had one set. The nursing school had one set. Like, you know, there's like three different sets of three different classes I had to take for all these different things I applied to. So I had a decent map of the body and it kind of stuck with me. And so I started just thinking to back engineer some stuff. I'm like, okay, well, you know, that, that, that really like trying to fix the shoulders. That led me to look at the feet and realize that like that ankle sprain I'd had years ago, it never quite healed. It was always a little bit stiff. My big toe wouldn't move. And then that kind of like shifted my knees and my hips and created all these problems up the chain, including a functional leg length discrepancy. So one leg was actually sitting, one hip was sitting shorter than the other. And then I was like, so of course, I had no idea what I was doing. So I kind of bumble in and backwards, figure this stuff out, change the shoes, change the running form, and end up getting injured almost every step of the way. It's like, that's one thing people don't you know talk about enough is like, I'm injured. I hurt myself. So I have this compensation. I do this thing to fix it. You're going to get hurt doing that. It's like three steps forward, one step back. Always, always. Because yeah. you're loading new tissue with old patterns. And so, but it's just, if you just keep going, you let that settle out and figure out the new thing. You, you, you break one through one roadblock and you run to the next one. Break that, run to the next one. So it's, it's just a process, but I just didn't stop. And then uh, I was always, always working with clients as a coach along the way. So I kind of got in the practice of having to explain it to people, having to write things down. I got in the habit of like when I would go to research, I would write that down into an article or like make it a podcast or a resource So because that's how I would learn it. And so I'd write it and then try to explain it to somebody else. And so over years and years of like being the amateur, the one that just in love with a hobby of like learning how to move and how to like fix these things, I would just go and learn it and then try to explain it and relay that to people I was working with to myself and then eventually turn to social media and you get better and better kind of putting these things in words and helping them like in, in a, 
as an amateur, like, here's the thing is, I have no reputation to protect. I'm not a PhD. I'm not a medical. I'm not a professional. I'm not anything. I'm just a I coach. Who's in a really, way, there's a lot of freedom in that. Absolutely. Because I know that, like, even talking about nutrition, like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not nothing. I can say something, and, as you know, as long as I have good intentions, I'm fine with saying it, and I, and I know that it's like, yeah. like, hey, this worked for me. I, you know, I'm not held down by the Hippocratic Oath to, yep. you know, or anything weird like that, you know. And that's one of those things that it's like I, I've gotten much better prefacing is that the things that I, I hold strong beliefs, but I, I like to think of it as a strong belief loosely held in a sense. So like I'm pushing with an open hand. Like when I per- find something that I perceive to be a step in the right direction, I'm going to push that as hard as I can until something new shows. And so as someone that I don't have any methods or procedures that are licensed under my name, I don't have this, you know, the, the whatever, like the thing I'm grasped in or, or any of the surgeries. Like let's say if you know, this is what – how do they know that a certain surgery isn't effective? Like, how do they know? Yeah. They have to they have to do it, right? Yeah. I mean, and then eventually when you're the guy, like you you've cut open twenty, thirty people and you give them long enough time, does it work? It's like well, it's not that effective, but hey, this is my thing. And yeah. so then you get, you know, if you like then it's your reputation, it's your name. Mark and always says always be careful the word work. Like does it yep. work? Exactly. Like what does that even really mean, right? Like does it Exactly Hey, I took this, does it work? It's like it, that's such a loose, weird term. If by right? work it didn't kill me, then sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like and so that's one of those things where most surgeries – and this is the thing I think is fascinating. Most surgeries are just they, – they are shown over longer-term, I guess, review uh, to just not be any better than a sham surgery. Mm-hmm. And so especially things like meniscotomies and labral surgeries and all the stuff, it's like, like people do it because they perceive some level of external like support. Like, OK, the, I'm going like, to get surgery. It's going to fix it. It's like – no, but sometimes the surgery just injures you so bad that you have forced to go and do the physical therapy, which is just basically exercise in a very limited capacity and take it seriously because you have literally no other option. They just cut you open. And so, like, if that's fine as a placebo that gets people moving, then maybe that works. But for most people, it's like if you just stuck with it and let your body remodel and reform, that cartilage would heal. And it, that's where you look at all kinds of dietary interventions, all kinds of little things. But um, like, that was the whole point. So because I had no – like profession to uh, to pursue. It's like I could do some baseline certifications, like the bare minimum personal training certification, the bare minimum nutrition certification. And like, okay, I've got some. I did. I won't jump through a hoop, but like, I've spent. And this is not an exaggeration. Thousands and thousands of hours listening to podcasts. Like, I don't listen to music. I don't watch TV. I just listen to podcasts. And so I don't read books as much because. It's like it's kind of a sunk time. Like if I can get a podcast or an audio book to it listen to. It moves faster. Yeah. I, I listen to two, two and a half X speed because I'm like, let's go through this. I, I, I don't, I'm the only and person that's why I can't. you talk so fast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt good with the one and a quarter speed. That's really impressive. No, some of them it's like if they both speak English and speak it loudly and clearly, then I can go two and a half X speed and do that. But if, you know, if it's something I'm really like in the weeds, maybe one and a half X speed, I'll slow it down. But I'm the only one I can't listen to one and a half X speed. I'm like, or I have to go back and like. Well, buddy. All right, let's slow down here. Yeah, let's you see. and um, Paul Saladino's like that. I always yeah. think I have it on two x speed. I'm like, nope. He just talks that fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's there. Part of it for me is I realize that like, there's something I want to say, and I could just say the very simple thing, but because I am a quote unquote amateur in that sense, I don't expect anybody to believe me and my merit. Therefore, it's important for me to be able to set the setting for why I have the context for how I've thought about this. And also to give give at least some service to the fact that I understand there's alternative perspectives. Uh, obviously, you started running. You became mm. you know you became good at it. 
And then you like where at what point did you get like the confidence to be like, okay, now now I can teach this. So well, the running part is interesting because I was never good at running. I just had run a lot. So I ran track and cross country starting in seventh grade. So I did that for seven, six, seven years. Um, and then it wasn't until a senior that I got really into like the four by 400 because I started lifting. And I'm like, oh, because otherwise you're the mid to the long distance cross country kid. You do the two mile on the track. You're the you're the like the slow skinny kids. They put out the very end. It's the work. If you ever been to a track meet. Then have you ever been like a, a big track meet, one of those states? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah well, I, probably. I, I was on the track team, but yeah. just because there was chicks on it. Uh, and okay, I was like, you know, a thrower. Yeah. But I wasn't really any good. It was just like I was big and fat, so they let me throw a shot put and a discus. But I've been to those big yeah, state track meets. and So you know uh, how long yeah. you get there, like six or seven. Oh, it's all day long. Yeah. And then, you you know, the, the four by eight is the first thing, and then they go. And at the very end of a 12 to 14-hour day, Let's let the skinny kids go run eight miles or run eight laps. And it's like the most miserable thing. Where you've been sitting, sitting around like, all day and then you got to oh run eight Oh, my miles. God. And it's just being that because it gets so spread out and it's just so quiet. And they're finally just get off the track because then they can do the four by four and then the bang. And then it's like everyone loves that. But Have you been to a powerlifting meet? Sometimes you deadlift at like 10 p.m. Oh like if it's a big meet. I, that, I know it's brutal. Yeah, it's know? crazy. Long yeah. days. So I think it was the point I ran and I, I would go and I just was decent at suffering. So I ran, I rode crew in college. And so running was always kind of a fallback thing. Um, never something I loved to do. It was just my friends did it and somewhat social. And I like, it gave me like literally a hamster wheel. I saw this uh, video or TikTok of a dog last night. It was like sitting in front of this self-powered treadmill. It's like screaming, whimpering. It's like, let me go. Let me, the owner harnesses the dog in and the dog just takes off. And it's like, yep, I know what you mean. It's like, you just need something to go and like burn off energy, literally. Yeah. So that was kind of what it was. And so then when I went and lifted, it wasn't, you know, I, I always wanted to play sports. Ultimately, that was always what, it, what I wanted to do. Ultimate football, ultimate frisbee, basketball, soccer, football, you, you name it. It was like, you give me a sport, I'm like, yes. And so running was very much like a, I kind of like stopped doing it. But then I started doing some powerlifting and getting a little bit of chub and around the around the midsection. I was like, okay, I want to get back and feel a little more athletic. And so, you know, I was like, uh, maybe I should start running again and start to do some of that stuff. And that's when... You go from I'd always just worn the big Asics and so like the big thick heeled shoes and it's kind of like you'd be surprised, but my coach never talked about running for him. And I, I was kind of felt faster when it was on my the balls of my feet, but it was no one ever encourages, no one ever talks about it. And so I was like, I guess it's just whatever. So you just kind of grind through it. Uh, what does a coach talk about if they don't talk about form? Uh, really, so we actually the the Weddington High School that uh, where I went is actually a powerhouse now. He's Rick Spencer's the coach there. Like they go and they do. Like I think they won a state multiple years in a row. Like they, I was we were the first year. So at that point, I don't know. You know, you realize coaches are just teachers, right? It's like yeah. at the time you're in high school, like. This is like adults are a whole different thing. Like they just know everything. It's like actually they're just a teacher. That yeah. It's just, you know, a few years it's out of college. The teacher wanted to make some extra money and they coached the team yeah. or whatever. Right? He happened to – but he was one of those guys that like does the 100-mile marathon. He was uh, legit. Uh, he would just go and like – I think there's a little bit of that when people want to go do that much like endurance stuff. They were trying to get away from their life or something. Maybe they love it. Maybe it's just they're like, really introverted and it's their time to like have a reason to like actually I got to go train. It's like, yeah. So he would go and do that um, and – so, but he was a legitimate runner. So, I I don't know because at that point, like I was a teenager, I had my head up my ass almost all the well, time. Well, they probably don't coach much, right? They probably just say go run, and yeah. that's that's all you do at practice, right? Exactly. There's just, not like running along with no, you saying, "Okay, not. now trot this way," or absolutely yeah. not. And it was one of those things where, like, it says, "All right, go," and then this is the workout, eight miles, and so like. 
you'd spend it maybe at the end you do some of the stuff but like if you were in well, track they might talk it about is it, much but... different than football because like football you have the whole team yeah. out on the field and you can be like you do this you go here or you have them doing different drills or doing whatever stuff. right yeah. but like when you run you got to be on your own for a couple you yeah. know for like an hour by and yourself i personally think that most running training is really ineffective and misses the point but we can talk about that later if you want but the point is that like I, I just I was familiar with it. So, like, I never had this blocking. So I'm not a runner. I can't run. It's like, I've been a runner. I've done it. Like, I've done 16, 15, 16-mile runs just in practice. And it's like, okay, you know. So it was something I could go back to. So, but the point is when I went back to it, I didn't, I was, I had this newfound, I was weighed 40, 50 pounds more, just mostly muscle. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I think I need to be on the balls of my feet and I'm going to wear these shoes. And so I went back and immediately got shin splints immediately because I was like, you go run two miles on concrete without knowing what you're trying to do. And then you switch to your, your forefoot. And it's like, that's not good. And that took months to fix. And then, you know, I went from like the Reeboks to like these really thin paper shoes. And that gave me turf toe because like my toes weren't ready to bend for it. So it was like. I try. I was. It's never been like that. I felt I was great at running, but I was always familiar with it. So I didn't have the mental block of like, oh yeah, you're you're not a runner. You're not able to do it. So then I kind of had to back end it all. Like, how do I fix my feet? Well, I can't even move my toes. How do I get my toes to move? Okay. Then I started to like figure that piece out. And then it was what exercises are powerful or, or effective for getting the fascia to remodel. So the connective tissue and the Achilles tendon and the plantar fascia. How does that work? And so then it was like, okay, well that that's one step. And then you start to get a little bit better, and it snowballs. And then you're like, actually. I'm getting faster. Like this is the fastest I've ever been. And you start to look at some of these pieces around uh, realizing that actually running is really just jumping from foot to foot. And that's actually supported by the strength of your tissues, not necessarily your conditioning. Then it's like, okay, well, you start to ask these questions. And that, like this is one of the things that I, I've, I've found to be a useful tool so I'll make a program, right? And so you go into whenever you start. So example, let's just say you're making a documentary, right? We always have to have constraints on a creativity. If you're going to go, because if if you don't, creativity without constraints is chaos. Because like I'm going to make a documentary. Documentary. How long is it going to be? What's it going to be about? As Who's going to be? Yeah, you can't you be know? like as long as it ends up. Because yeah. it's like it might be five hours and, and that's will watch it. Okay, where do you want this documentary to go? Well, a film festival or a, a YouTube or a short story or a TikTok. Yeah. So, okay, so those all have different constraints on both the, the, the lens, like the portrait or landscape, whether it's going to be, you know, yeah. like the, the – has a lot of different constraints. Exactly. So you said constraints. and different things. But sometimes you get those constraints are made off of assumptions in some sense. Like sometimes there's rules that are fixed. It's like YouTube is always going to be best in, in landscape as opposed to portrait and TikTok's always going to be portrait. And so like – but sometimes it's like you go in and all of a sudden it's like, wait, actually the rules change. And so what you go in though is like most people go in with a set of constraints that are based off of beliefs that they have about themselves or the world or environment. It's, those are basically assumptions that they made based off of inaccurate or un, un, incomplete knowledge because almost uh, like everything, there's nothing that's complete knowledge. It's just when we – sometimes we set the rules for things that say, okay, you know, the soccer field is always going to be this dimension by this dimension, right? So we go in and we train and we do this stuff. But because most people go in with the first set of constraints and then they just live in that paradigm, they never question it. And then when they never, sometimes it's useful to think, well, what if this weren't true? What if, you know, the phone turned into a circle? What if there's 3D? What if, you know, like there was no longer time or whatever it is, right? You think, would I go back and do this the same way? And so I could think, I could go in with the knowledge I've learned with a new set of constraints. I, or I remove those temporarily just to play around with this idea. And so for me, it was, I never had the mental block of like, this is, uh, I'm a, I'm not a runner. And then never had the idea of like, this is how running is supposed to be. Therefore, I was able to say, huh, 
well, what if this is not the best way to do conditioning? What if this is not the best way to do running? So then I was just able to kind of like try something different, which I think as an inventor, as someone who thinks about this, you probably do this automatically without thinking about it. But like going back to old ideas that were made under old constraints and then applying new arbitrary constraints to them sure. can open up a whole new level of, well, does it have to be this long? Could I say in this many words? Could I make it twice as long? Well, I'm kind of thinking about that right now, actually, like as a filmmaker, um, I think the game has changed and I'm trying to explain to people I'm working with, listen, we need to raise the money, make a movie and then like see if um, like I'm not really interested in going to Netflix anymore because Netflix is now um, very made it very clear that they're very political mm-hmm. and, and which, which side they land on. And it's very slanted. It's mm-hmm. very biased. Like anything that you see on Netflix can be very biased. Anything you see on Amazon's owned by Jeff Bezos. That's also going to be very biased. How do you get something that's like free and open and like, and I don't even know anymore yeah. because you go to YouTube and they're very biased. Right? So if you have any opinions that differ from what the world tells you, for example, the next film that I'm trying to make is about meat. Yeah. Now all the all three of those places they want meat off your plate. You know, Bill Gates wants meat off of our plates, and yeah. and so it's like, how do I make a movie about meat and actually get an audience to hear it? Well, maybe I post it in six hundred pieces on Twitter. Like you don't, you don't know. Like it, like you're saying, we might have to change yeah. these constraints because of things going on. You know, and and so it's it's interesting. And that's one of those things where if you thought about potentially, what if I took a section of this and made it TikTok? In a sense, like this is part one, part yeah, two. Yeah, like, that's what I'm saying, stuff like that. Because then like, let's say some part of it is like that forces you a different constraint. But like that – so this is the thing is that's why that level of creativity is what keep, keeps things fresh. And so if you go back and say like just even as a thought exercise, like what if we could make this a 15-minute documentary on TikTok? You know, and so, okay, there's 15 pieces. And so then someone ends up catching, whether you get a part seven or eight, they catch part nine. Like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Wait, this is part nine. Let me go back and watch part one. And they could sit there and watch and scroll and scroll. Yeah. Like, that's a whole different thing. And so that's where I look at. So I built this program to uh, develop the feet and, and like, fix, like basically fix the feet, ankle, lower leg, and really like uh, tying everything from the, from the pelvic floor and below. And part of it was like, I just kind of, you overthink it, you have all these different things, but why you shouldn't do it, why it's going to be too much or this, that. And it's like, okay, well, actually, this popped in, like, well, just make an email series you send out to people for 28 days with the training attached. And I was like, oh, okay, because I can write it, I can, if you told me I have to write a 40,000 word book, that's overwhelming. But if you said just write 28 emails and just see however long each one is, and then you can go back and rewrite it, and then it ends up being a 40,000 word book, like, oh. You don't think about it like that. I'm just yeah. writing one little Attacking piece. things like a little bit at yeah. a time. And then I'm thinking like, okay, well, this is great. But what if I could take each of these articles and put it into a 30-second or less TikTok? And that it's just a whole different challenge. Because then, you know, on one hand, you can think, well, that's pointless. What's, the, what's the, the value in that? It's like, well, if I can say it in less words than that as well. The time constraint is the most amazing tool of creativity. Yeah. So if you take something and you try to make it 30 seconds – you have to do what we call in the in the business kill your darlings or yep. kill, kill killing your babies, your babies right? Yep. Like kill the sacred cows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's hard. It's like you you're like, oh man, I came up with that line and that was so funny, yeah. but it doesn't fit the story, so it's got to go. Yeah, you know. And I do that. Um, I help Mark edit a lot of his TikToks now. It's mm-hmm. like, how can we make these more efficient? Mark More's has economy. the ability, and I'm sure you do too. Like you, once you get your account, you can do like three minute TikToks or long. You know, you can do longer TikToks, but three minutes is kind of too I've long. I've never made one. Yeah. I don't think you should. I think they should stay at the the 60. I think the 60s perfect unless maybe you're playing a part of a movie yeah. or something like that. But otherwise, like use the time constraint to your advantage. You're going to get more views. Mm-hmm. Our attention span is so short nowadays. Which is interesting 
Because if you think about that, it's easy to go and say, like, so for example, you can look and say, you know, Netflix and Amazon and uh, YouTube are all biased. Potentially, it's a cha- it could be a dog chasing his own tail or the dog wagging the tail in a sense because, like, you could say the companies start with this paradigm and it funnels down to the content they show. Or you can say that they're trying to cater to what they perceive to be as an extremely – people – they put up – they love to put up neutral stuff. Yeah. But the only things people watch are this and that. And it's like then they go blame the algorithm. It's like that's the hard part because people want that. Yeah, it is network. really hard because we do find that, like, nuance doesn't sell in any capacity, right? So um, yeah. It's like when even just somebody sees the barefoot sprinter, right there, that's like a trigger enough for some people to go, wait, he runs with no shoes on? Like it's enough to be extreme. Like it's enough to get people to click on it. Like where as maybe if you were like just the sprinter, people like, well, who cares? There's a lot of people sprint. You know what I mean? The fast guy. It's like, yeah, it's not the best example, but basically – but yeah, by creating the barefoot sprinter, you're definitely breaking out of Graham Tuttle because you're yeah. telling like what it is. This yeah. is what this is, you know? So that's one one thought just to finish the other one is like it's easy to say that, oh, we, you know, people have a short-term attention span. But I remember very clearly when you'd go and you listen to like – you watch a movie. What movie do you watch? Well, let's look at the trailer. We've been doing this forever, which yeah. is they take a three-hour movie and they put it into a two-minute trailer, a 30-second trailer. And, and then does like, it look good? Exactly. Yeah. Or even more realistically, when you walk through Blockbuster, if anybody remembers Blockbuster, and you go, huh, what name sounds cool? What font is this? I'm judging a book by its cover. We've been doing that for forever. You, you know what's yeah. kind of amazing is uh, when I made Bigger, Stronger, Faster, I had so many people – come up to me and said, I was walking through Blockbuster and I saw that like Hulk Hogan on this and and I just went boom. Like it just brought me back to my childhood and I go, what the hell is this? And I picked it up and I looked at it and I rented it and I loved it. You know, like that's sort of how it got attention in Blockbuster was through literally the box, you know, which I made me proud because I designed the cover of it. It's it's iconic. It's It's even, I love to see it. It's great. Yeah. So like, that that's a big part of it, which is like, okay, we, we're still doing that. So now potentially the game has changed and people are like, well, it doesn't work the way I used to. It's like they don't care about the whole thing. It's like, yeah, but maybe the whole thing is kind of boring. And so then it's like, well, what can you do to make that? So I just think it's a useful, uh, useful thing to put into that. But that's the other part of this. You're the barefoot sprinter, right? So the reason I changed the name to that was more because – Really, what you get is there, there's, and maybe this is this is my belief, and this is probably a rough overgeneralization, but there's two categories of things. There's paradigm breakers, and there's commodities. So, a commodity is basically something that says the message that we had prior about how to fix or do or operate in a certain capacity was correct. We're just going to compete on the price or the ease of access. We're going to change some vector that allows it to be more uh, readily accessible, right? So we don't need new gas. We're just going to make the gas price go down one cent. And so that's where people commit on like, you know, goods in a sense, uh, like cotton, wheat, gas, copper, whatever it is. Then there's paradigm breakers, which it says, like, for example, the electric car could be a paradigm breaker because it shifts something like actually that thing that you thought worked, it doesn't work in the way you did. There's some, there's a, a uh, leverage on knowledge that I have some new capacity. I have know something that you don't. So that's allowed me to see the world in a different perspective. And now I have this thing. And so that's where you go. And you can't go too much because there's a brilliant people out there. And like a lot of the eccentric creators, you know, Buckminster Fuller, like some of these guys out there that like Marshall McLuhan, they're like even Thomas at it. Like some of these real, real smart guys that like have changed things. You look at – they may have one or two things like the light bulb takes off, but you'll look at their uh, their uh, invention book and they've got hundreds if not thousands of other things that oh, are yeah. crazy. And you go, like, this is amazing. It, it, was, it was a bridge too far for most people. So that's why like it is a painstakingly slow uh, 
travel, like the, the way that ideas and uh, let's say uh, people and societies move. But it's basically, can you inch it just one degree? Yeah. And if you can go in and break the paradigm of saying, you know, like for me, the my I, my capacity is the message in the sense that your feet can go from like broken, beat up, injured, and very stiff and and like incapable to being very resilient and strong. And that's just a matter of not not surgeries, not pills. Not Did it come stuff. out of necessity for you? Because I find a lot of invention and innovation comes out of like, well. I was running on my shoes on and my feet killed or something like any anything like that or was it more it was just like more a progression? Of, uh, so in some sense, I was I was lucky because I still live over in, in, near Chapel Hill, so the university and so all most most public universities. Have like to, what made you go barefoot? I guess I should say so they had a large turf field and so like this massive like football field sized turf field that was open to the public and so you know I had the opportunity to go there, but it was one of those things where like I had already been into you know I went from like the typical. A6 to the like the typical basketball shoes and to like Reebok Nanos and to Nike Freeze and this is back before they got ridiculous but uh, then it was like okay I'll go from that to to Merrells and then they got too tight and then it was Vivos and then I kind of got to the point like you know the Vibram five finger that let the toes and I got more and more comfortable with my feet out and so I would go wear regular shoes and my feet just felt cramped and so I was already at the point where, like, my feet do not feel good in these things. I still had the running shoes. I still had the other things. But it was just I kind of was acutely aware that, like, my feet don't feel good in that. And it was – I was lifting and doing all kinds of stuff and playing around. And then I would go and go out to the turf. And so a lot of this happened with the pandemic where I spent more time outside running again, beyond this turf field. And then, you know, I'm already in the minimal shoes, just jumping around. I'm like, okay, well, if I could do this. And then it just – you know, it felt good to be able to run. And it kind of back ended. I backed into it in a sense of like it just felt really good. And I was like, I've never been able to do this before. But the more I did it, the better I felt. Because this is after kind of years of working on my feet, trying to get them strongest. It's now it's quicker for me to coach people because I have a codified process of like this, do this, then this, and this. These are the goals that we're trying to do. But I was like inching my way along step by step over a few years to figure out like, okay, how do I get my feet and body underneath me again? And then it was along with that that came the change of shoes, change in capacity. And then finally it was one of those where I started doing it more and more and it just it, – I felt faster without shoes. Yeah. And then one of the guys has been a long-term mentor, the Keegan Smith, for me, it was like, hey, you know that thing you do, the barefoot? Like, that's crazy. That, that would break my feet if I tried to do that. I was like, huh. And then he's like, yeah, you, the barefoot sprinter, you ever, you ever thought about that? And then like kind of sit around for a while and it was like – Actually, that's exactly what I'm trying to get people to understand is that your body can heal and be recovered. And like to, no different than you and your scar tissue with the hips is like I have a belief that my body is strong and capable and will heal with the right support and training. So I will yeah. – I'm going to pursue that. And so then like – but otherwise like the message, the other message is like no, your body's actually weak. It's broken. It's not made right. Genetics are wrong and you're screwed. And so it just is what it is. Sucks to suck. It's kind of what we're told. You yeah. Know? Like I showed you that video. Um, it was from Cheddar, and they were like, "Why the fo- foot is a bad design?" And you're like, "I don't, I don't agree with that." Yeah, and you know, again, that's it's my like belief. that's what we're told, kind of right? We're told like your feet suck, so you're you're done. So, and this is one of those things where, like, this is uh, this is my belief, but it, it's I. When you look at that, we have two options to say that our body is broken. It's just the you know we're just a random genetic selection that kind of popped in the next piece, or our body is designed in a specific way, and you, you don't have to put any too much more uh, emphasis into the word design. But you can think of like the fact that the natural selection, or that yeah, it's evolved that way, or even just a few people ago, meaning like a few hundred years ago, we were still yeah. the level like if the body didn't work, you're gonna either not get, uh, you're not gonna get a mate, you're not gonna survive, whatever, like. That was just a few people ago. So, yeah. you know, we're not that far moved from uh, evolution's capacity to select for positive things. Yeah, and like so, how long have we, ha- have we had e- even had shoes? 
You know, that's the like, thing is there's billions of people right now who don't have shoes. Exactly. Like, and yeah, that's yeah. what people don't they like we had this paradigm which is like if I don't have shoes, like what and shoes all the I wear? people without shoes are the people that when you look at like the Gota people and people telling you like how your feet and your ankles and your knees should all line up and everything, they're going to like tribes that don't have shoes. Yeah. And then when you see the people with shoes, I don't know if you saw on Mark's Instagram, he posted like this mangled foot. And that's like somebody's x-ray from just being in a shoe for too many years. You know, it's like – and I feel like I have those same problems with my feet. It it is tough because we – so this is one of the things I've kind of come to the conclusion and again, this is my belief based off of my non-professional experience. But the – so my program in the first five classes, I've had over 700 people sign up for it. And so like it's – the process is amazing. uh, Thank you. Thank you. But the – it, what I what I tell people, they go, I have this. I, it's metatarsalagia. I've got turf toe, Morton's aromas. I've got hammer toe. I've got Liz Frank sprains or fractures. I've got like, you name it, what they have, bunions. It's like almost every single thing I've seen other than the fact of like a bilateral crush, which is where people like jump out of a window and smash their feet open. Like that's a whole different thing. But I've still had those to fix those. But what you see is that people, they, they there's all these semantic names for things that go wrong with the feet, like broken toes that end up turning into this. But the feet and the, the hands are not unlike anything else. I mean, they're, sorry, they're, the feet and the hands are not unlike one another in terms of the tissue that they have. So when you look at it and say, okay, we have the capacity. It's the same structure. We have our phalanges, which are the actual bones. We have two in the thumb and then three in the actual fingers. We've got our five metatar- metacarpals in the hand. We have eight carpal bones in the hand and only seven in the foot. Um, and obviously, we've had changes in this stuff over thousands of or millions of years of evolution. But fundamentally, it's the same tissue, the same capacity. And so you'll notice all this stuff like you playing football or doing stuff like that. You, you stub a finger, right? You break a finger or yeah. you, you jam your thumb or something like that. You know, we don't have problems with our toenail or our fingernails. We don't have problems with our fingers. We don't have like the stiffness. We get, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome where this thing gets basically – like you're holding your wrist in this kind of collapsed position way too oh, much. he walks in on. Smelly walks in when you're sitting here like this. Yeah. <laughs> so you think about it. That's the only issue we have with this wrist. And so the wrist is like, okay, then we move that. Yeah, with the foot, we don't think about any of the fact that like all the issues we have are because we don't ever bend the toes. So you look at people who have messed up toenails, who get these Morton's neuromas, who get this incapacity or inability to move their toes. Therefore, you get a sprained toe, it turns into turf toe. Not because there's something wrong with your foot, but because you've not bent your toe in the last three to five years or yeah. 20 years. Or th- and so you start to think about it. It's like if I can't get blood flow to the tissues in and around my fingers, my fingernails, they would be messed up. If I can't do that for my toes, the same thing happens. And so then you get podiatrists that say, well, we need to measure you for especially cut orthotic. We need to put you in pronation control shoes. We need to measure your gait. It's like, or you could just think that maybe my foot hasn't bent in forever. This is this guy who was down with Ben Patrick and one of the guys, he was uh, at the gym. He's like, this kid could jump like nothing else. He jumped and his eyes are at the rim level. It's insane. And you go look at it and he's got these long tendons, these thin legs and his very long tendons, very a tendon dominant athlete. And, but his knees bothered him. So he had like, he, when he, First started going to the gym down there, like he had torn ACL or something like that. His knee wouldn't bend all the way. And so they were working. He made big progress just getting some blood flow to the knee. And I look at him like, well, you can't even – your feet and your ankles are so stiff. So I'm like, hey, come over here and you take your shoes off. I grab his feet and I bend his toes and every one of them just crack. And they're not like the kind of like crack and pop like people have, but like the crack of like I have not bent that in a long time. He's like, I don't know the last time I've bent my toes. And I'm like, it is not exaggeration. So this is when we talk about ankle mobility. It's almost always based on how well your toes can bend, how well your knee can bend. It's nothing to do with the ankle. But I go, I bend as I flex his toes and they all crack. And I'm like, that's insane to me that we have a part on our body 
that we just do not move. So that's like if you you know you have one hand. It, I, it was, I think it was the the lady in the water, the M Night Shyamalan in a hand. Yeah, where the guy is the, there's the guy in the, sitting in the stairwell who only curled with one arm and is massive. Or you look at a tennis player. You know, if you had one hand that you held in this kind of like like squeeze your fingers together, and then the other hand where you moved into everything else, you're going to see a difference in the morphology and the actual muscle development and the actual uh, neuromuscular control. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And yet we don't think of that as an option for our feet. It's like if you put something in a cast or something after exactly. a while, it just becomes lame. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't move anymore. Good, and so this know? is like this is one that I, I've been thinking more and more. Like I love my – people ask – I've got these Fibram five fingers. I love. I wear them for everything. For running, I go like 10, 12, 13-mile hikes with them. Um, it, like I wear them in the airport. I walk in people like, oh, I love those shoes. They're so cool. And I'm like – it's crazy because the thing that people uh, flip out on is not that I wear shoes that show my toes, but it's that I wear toe socks underneath. Like, you wear toe socks? I'm like, yeah, but like, what? I'm surprised people always think that's so weird. But I like the toe socks are really comfortable. So that's what I was going to say. I think at the very least, if you're listening to this, the single best thing you can do, even if you're wearing, if you don't change anything else, get toe socks. Because what you see is so, for example, you put your shirt on and there's an itchy tag. You feel it for a while. That's called proprioception. So it's yeah. the physical feedback you get from the wearing something physically touching you. And so eventually, you don't feel that anymore because your body tones it out. So now you think about this is if I have my toes that have always been held together, they're in socks, they're in shoes, and when I take them off, like you, you forget what it's like to feel in between the digits. And so once – if you like for putting toe socks on, I take these toes that are always held together and I you know put something in between them, a sock, and I put my fingers and kind of spread them out to get the toes in there because it's kind of awkward at first as you probably have like – Yeah. I remember the first time I put them on, I was like five minutes late to, late to work because I'm like, wait, I can't I, – I, I couldn't put them on. I was like I had to sit down like because I was always – this is the first day where my Vibram's too. And I was like trying to get my feet to go in the toes, in the toe socks. I'm like this yeah. is really – why can't I had to sit down and go one at a time? But just even that, the, the proprioception of like, oh, actually, there's they're different digits. They're impossible to put on, Russell. Just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a skill set. Mark time. I think I got my shoes and socks on in thirty seconds or twenty seven seconds. But once you do, he's right. Though. Once you get used to it, it gets easier. Yeah. You know. But just even as simple as that, as you walk around in shoes, if your feet feel something sliding in between them, you train them to think of. You train them to turn back on. So if nothing else, just putting toe socks is a huge benefit. And then there's a whole level of stuff you can Where, do sitting down. Guys like Russell Thank you. and I are what handsome men, great well, personalities, we are very handsome. strong jawlines, but great we, hair. We also have a lot of issues with a lot of the stuff. Like for example, even me lift trying to lift my leg to put on my like this is my good leg too. Yeah. Right. To try to put my sock on in the morning is really tough. Is yeah. it your left as well? Well, my this is even this one's worse. I can crossing you know, my like, left it's, leg. It's crazy. There's something wrong with the hip on that side. Yeah, and the, that, that's kind of what I want to ask you. A lot of people that watch this podcast, what are are either you know are past running. Mm-hmm. So how do you transition? Like something I've noticed in all of your videos is like you bring it down to a very low beginner's level. How do you at least if you're going to give advice to before you can even become the barefoot sprinter? How do you become the barefoot runner? Uh, you be the barrel walker, yeah. And, yes, and we you. and we did a little of this. Like I, I work with Graham out on the field, and uh, that day you just had me running backwards. Yeah. You're like, whoa! I, I, like I tried to run forward, and you're like, that's kind of like you might get hurt there. Yeah. Like turn around, um, just run backwards because you can't go that fast, and it has other benefits. So yeah, absolutely. Just tell us like where where do where do people start at the minimum? 
So and this is one that's interesting. Obviously, this is me being uh, somewhat contrarian, but like I always think it's the, the words matter. Sometimes it's semantic, sometimes it's not. But you say it's a very low beginner. It's like it's just a very human level. It's like, you know, what do I? What does it look like to reclaim my human capacity? Right. And as part of a human capacity, being able to sit on the ground, being able to get up off the ground, being able to touch your feet, you know, in different capacities. So if I can like put my socks on, all impossible, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. So those are the things that it's like. You know, the the point of a barefoot sprinter is some of the, like the, – it's to show that I'm not holding anything. Like I, if I can go and sprint, I think of sprinting and jumping as the highest forms of athletic expression in some senses. Like if you can do a broad jump and you can like, – triple broad jump and sprint, you can do the top. And that's kind of – you can do the top. You can do everything below that. So that's where I look and say, OK, this is just to show me as an example of like if I was here and now I'm here, then you can do it too. But it's also understanding that I remember what it was like to be at those points where my hips were so tight, my knees—I couldn't, I could not even dream about touching my toes. Like getting my hands below my knees was like that was good success. I see Ben like jump over this eight-foot box, and I'm like, it's it's impressive. It's definitely high output, like elite athleticism. But I'm so disconnected yeah. from, from that movement. But that's what's great about hearing his story too is like that he wasn't an expert at it before ben wasn't an expert at it before he like he built that it's just so hard for us to see that he built to that because you guys are at such a high level yeah that we're like how'd you build to that right. you know what's like first, geez what's the ground yeah this like is an that? interesting part too where you look at the actual like because on one hand it's easy to sit there and complain oh these guys only put up this stuff it's, yeah well if i put up the average stuff of me putting on my socks you wouldn't watch because it it's boring right. So that's what you have to capture imagination with something that's like that's why you look at Marvel and DC, all these superhero movies. They're superhumans, so they capture your imagination. But really, the message is like, hey, just go do good things. You know, like whatever it is, like use your power. With great power comes great responsibility. Watch the Spider-Man one yeah. the way over. But um, the the point is, you start with simple things like the walking is the single most underrated thing we could do. Just walking, just getting on your feet, moving, and doing that stuff is is huge. And so, you know, there's lots of stuff where at the beginning. Um, because the thing is, you don't have to even wear shoes. Like if you just go out in the grass and walk around, like in the front yard or find some place that's safe and walk forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, you're going to start to get blood flow. One of the things that's hard, and this is the ubiquitous thing people say, well, you know, when I get up in the morning, it's really hard for me to put my socks on. Well, what else has happened in the morning? Nothing. You've been sleeping. Therefore, all the tissues. So we think about the skin. We think commonly about the bodies of the skin and then underneath that there's bones and then there's muscle and maybe some fat and then maybe some tissue, like maybe some uh, like veins and things like that. But in reality, there's this web called fascia that wraps around the entire body, every muscle, every muscle cell, every ligament, tendon, bone, uh, like all the structures in our body. And that's also integrated with the, the skin. And so there's your dermis and then there's layers of fascia. In between this layer of fascia, so like you could think of uh, baklava in a sense, like this flaky layer, layers of stuff. That's kind of what the dermis looks like. But in between that, yeah, you're, I know, right? <laughs> so if you've got tight <laughs> calves, my arm. I know, yeah, yeah, I didn't, you know. Um, but if you look at these muscles, like someone's got very stiff and tight muscles, they almost always the skin is stiff on top of that, right? So like they can't get the skin to be loose and move off of the of that tissue underneath, and so that's where we're starting to get. What ends up happening, this is where things like cupping or uh, massage or foam rolling or lacrosse ball, stuff like that can be helpful. Just even just like touching and pressing in and trying to get some motion is essentially what you do is you activate and you get hyaluronic acid moving. And that's basically yeah. hydrating the tissue, the layers in between that. So they start to glide and slide easier. So part of this is just saying if you can get up in the morning and just even if you're not, you know, even before you get out of bed, start to like pick your knee up, pick your legs up and get these things moving, wiggle your toes around and start to move some of that. So what you want to think about, 
this analogy I always use is if, you know, any of us had long hair, but if I had a ponytail, right? So what we want to think about is we think of this, it is one long connected structure. So if I pull at the end of the ponytail, it's going to hurt at the scalp. And so we think about this, this fascia, there are 12 major lines that run up the body. So there's all, there's uh, four that go on the upper body alone, just on the arm. So like, uh, I guess there's one on the superficial front, the deep front, and the superficial and deep on the back. So those are kind of like, if you stretch your arm out the side, you feel that big uh, stretch from your fingertips all the way to your sternum. That's one, right? So that's, there's a whole uh, process there. But from your feet, the plantar fascia going up along your groin and your adductor. So from your feet to your pelvic floor, on the inside and the outside of your leg, on the front and the back of your leg. So you have a line that goes from the bottom of your big toe through your plantar fascia, up your calves, your hamstrings, your glutes, your back, your shoulders, your neck, your head, all the way to your eyebrows, your forehead. So if you look down around your back, it's all connected. So what we think about is if I – so in a sense, if I'm feeling irritation at the scalp in this ponytail analogy – I could either you know, try to grow my hair longer or massage the scalp and do other stuff, or I could just stop pulling the tension on the other end, basically get the, let go of the tension that's pulling on the hair. And so what you can start to think about is if you're feeling stiff in the morning, the first thing you do is not try to judge yourself, like, I can't squat, I might feel really stiff. That's okay. Let me start moving. And part of that movement is thinking, can I roll my ankles, do some ankle circles? Can I flex and extend my toes? Hmm. Because what you see is when I pull at the very, very end of that fascial line, which that's where most of the lines for the body start at the feet. Um, so if I start to pull and get some movement at the very bottom of this, that pulls and creates tension everywhere up the line. And so this is one of the things that people I hear over and over again is the feet feel stronger, more alive. Running feels better. I feel springier. I feel bouncier. My hips open up. My back feels better. It's like all these things because basically what I'm doing is the common thread. I can either start pulling in the ponytail analogy. I can start messing and trying to braid the middle or like pull and try and create some space in the middle of the hair. Or I can just start to create, like go back to the very, very beginning. So the simplest low-hanging fruit you could do is when you get up in the morning, start to move your toes before you even get up on the ground. Do some ankle circles. Flex, extend your toes, move it's your fingers. It's crazy that like I just never even thought of that. Yeah. Like I've never thought about like, oh, well, I'm still laying in bed. Just move my – because a lot of times I'll get up and that first step is like a doozy because, yeah. you know, some sort of arthritic, you know, yeah. pain will hit and me And what that arthritis is – so this is a great analogy. In this compressive structure I mentioned earlier where we think of the body as like you know a roof on top of the column, on top of the ground. So that's actually not how the body works. It's called this tensegrity unit, which is that everything is connected to everything else. And that if you press in on one of these models, everything gets compressed. If you expand, everything expands. And so fascia works like that. So if I pull on one area of the body, so if I straighten my arm and pull this out, for example, I can straighten my leg and then my ankle, if I bend my knee and I move my ankle up and down, that's one thing. If I straighten my leg, my ankle moves up and down. If I stand up and put my head down, my ankle is a little bit different. So everything is pulled and connected. So what you could do is if you're really stiff, let me finish that thought, is that the arthritic component is when bones are on bones. Bones should never be touching one another. They should be suspended in this matrix of fluid and fascia. So if they're touching one another, it means that the fascia has gotten locked down and stiff. And so that one pressure somewhere is pulling everything else in. So the first thing you start, you get up, you wake up in the morning, do some head circles. You know, actually, I would start. I would just start with wrist and finger circles before you even move and get I become unhorizontal. Then you sit up, you turn, let your hands, your feet hang off the ground. Straighten your leg. You do some ankle circles. You point the toes. Do some head circles, right? Then you stand up and do some hip circles. So you do like you know the SpongeBob bringing it around town, or you like yeah. stand up. And so at that point, now you've gotten blood flow to the major joints: the elbows, the wrist, the neck, the hips, the feet, the ankles. Because most people, their knees hurt and their elbows hurt a lot too. 
Uh, but they're not putting load on it first thing. So their knees are what feel stiff. You know, so if I've gotten the feet and the hips to move, the knees as a byproduct start to get the tension that's pulling them in. So the fascia and this connective tissue is either locking everything down, which you feel at the knee, or it's not. And if it's not, then the first thing is your body isn't being compressed into this really awkward, uncomfortable position. And from there, it's like, okay, well, actually, I have some freedom of movement. Now I can go start to move a little bit. And so you just start to think a little bit more actively. And so you get the shoulders move a little bit, get the fingers and hands going, walk to the bathroom, and you're, you know, then you're rolling. You can squat down if you need to go to the bathroom, whatever it looks like. That's how you do it. But you start off with a gentle movement. And then once you haven't created – because the other part of this is the narrative of pain we have in our head, which is you, know, you have a story, and it's, it's evidenced by scars, that your hips aren't healthy in a sense. right? But when you go, I've got bad hips, they're going to hurt – I already assume the pain. So, you know, like if, if uh, someone that's like a dog that's been hit, for example, yeah. you go to raise your hand, it flinches. It's like, I, was, I was going for the, yeah. for the cabinet and I wasn't even looking at you. We have this very strong neural drive where we associate things with that's going to hurt. Therefore, before it even has the chance to assess it as a fresh thing, if we've had pain for months, weeks, years, decades, we're just up. It's going to hurt. And so there's some part of that which you can't measure pain. It's all subjective. And that, yeah, that goes into um, I had this conversation with Mark. Every time I've done mushrooms, when I use psychedelics, uh, I can squat down, I can move around, I can move all over the place. And I think it's because it, it gets rid of your inhibitions. Like it gets rid of that thought pattern mm-hmm. that's holding you back, not necessarily, not necessarily fixing you. It's like, giving you a clean slate on like, it's not going to hurt when you squat down. Don't worry about it. You know? And then I can just squat right down. It's like, it's really weird what I can do on psychedelics, you know? Yeah. Like I'll take mushrooms and just like stretch out and stuff. And it's incredible. And so I think like as we move forward, and I'm not recommending people go out and do this, but I think it I will am. be part of <laughs> it will be part of therapy, I think. I hope so. You know, in the near future. So let's uh, we take that 10 staggerity model, which is that everything something that compresses the unit, compresses everything, something that expands, it expands. Now one of the things that happens on mushrooms and psychedelics is that an expansion of consciousness, right? To think of I'm unencumbered, I'm enlightened, I'm enlightened, take the things off, I unburden myself. So part of this is I focused on my breath. I realized that, like, I'm connected. There's a sense of connectedness to the world. And so this uh, sad guru talks about this, um, which I think is the funniest name ever. Sad, sad guru. guru. I like that. It's a S-A-D-H-G-U-R-U. He's phenomenally intelligent. He's a brilliant guy. But he talks about this idea of, like, and, again, it's not his idea. I don't know who owns ideas, but I heard it through him. Um, but, you know, we, we think of ourselves as these units that float autonomously through the world, right? And we don't think of, like, the air around us as part of ourselves. But if Nothing changed, but the air was just gone. We'd be all dead in a few minutes, right? And so if the air that flows in and out of you, if you can't live without it, then it is part of you, right? So we become on mushrooms the ego, which is the story of us. We we step away from that for just a moment. We get some space there. We, we shake up the snow globe, as it were. And we're able to perceive that our consciousness, our existence, is broader than just our physical vessel, right? So the knowledge is shared, the dialogue is between two, like the conversation between two, a third thing can be known. So in that moment, we expand. And think about that. If I am expanding one part of the unit, everything else expands. So my body expands. I feel lighter. My muscles become less tense. I'm not holding as much tone. My tissues are able to spread. Literally, I become lighter. And so that's one of those things with our focus. What we attend to contracts or expands us. And so in our day-to-day life, when we get so focused on these things, my pain, my body, that's why I'm so passionate about helping people get out of pain because you cannot think about it fundamentally. Like get out of pain, make money, figure out who you are, 
use that money to buy, build your future. Use that knowledge of money to, to afford yourself a future, like build it out and then go manifest it. Like that to me is a five-step plan for success. But fundamentally, none of that happens if you're in pain, if your hips hurt, if your neck hurts, if your back hurts, you throw your back out. The most central thing, you, know, you think about it, like if you step on something and your toe hurts, like you're limping around, that's, you're reminded every single step. But most fundamentally, most viscerally, you throw your back out. Your life is just on pause. So if people are fragile, if their bodies don't work, if they're in pain, they have absolutely no capacity to think bigger and to be anything more than just, oh, you know, like I'm just – then they start to label themselves. I've got bad back. I've got bad knees. Yeah. I've got bad eyes. And so you notice the language, good, bad, right, wrong. That's very fixed as opposed to I've got a weak back. I've got weak hips. And so yeah. that's part of the beauty of why I think it's so valuable to do things. Uh, sports are, I think, a, an outcome uh, that you can push people towards. But I think from a – a process metric, weightlifting, strength training, yoga, anything that's a discipline that forces you to use your body, forces you to realize that, like, I don't have bad knees, just weak. Right? Yeah. And so that's why I think it's so damaging when you look at, like, the sense of arthritis. Sure, whether or not it's healable in a sense is second to the point that that's a symptom of the fact that your body's not working how it should. It's not like getting caught up in this, like, Oh, I've got arthritis. Doctor says an easy there. I'm going to have to have a knee replacement. Like, oh, well, that's very damning. It's like, yeah. here's the thing. I always tell people, they go, I've got this set of arthritis. Can't, well, you know, the doctor says I can't fix it. And I'm like, okay, so let's play this out. You got two options. They're either right and you can't fix it and you're fucked. You have to have surgery. So might as well do whatever you can on the front end to see if it makes it even a little bit better. And the very worst, it just makes the prehab better so that you recover better after surgery. Because if you have to have surgery, you're already fucked. It is what it is. Or maybe, just maybe, there's an opportunity for your body to recover and get stronger and to actually heal. And if that's the case, then what would that look like? Oh, wait, it's the exact same process you would look like after surgery. So why don't we try that? And if worst case scenario, you're fucked, you're fucked. Yeah. And that's what I look at and say, like, there's a message of hope we can talk to and say that the body, it goes to the fundamental belief of the body's not right, wrong, or good, bad. It's just, it's on a, it's a growth spectrum as opposed to a fixed spectrum. It has the capacity to get stronger, the capacity to heal, the capacity to grow, because like, and this is where do you get that belief from? Well, why would it not be? Because up until, like I said earlier, up until a few people ago, that capacity, the person who could heal and recover was going to outlive the person who didn't. Yeah. Because, like, you know, you think about it's, that. It's really hard, um, you know, because, like, I try. So I've been dealing with this since I was a little kid. You know, I've been in severe pain since I was a little kid. And there's only been a couple of days in my life that I can ever remember feeling good, mm -hmm. you know? So it's hard to say, like, you know, because I, I talked to you and you were like, hey, you know, I think you have like a spiritual issue. Like, because I, I do complain a lot. I'm like, oh, this hurts, that hurts. But it's hard because I wake up with this attitude where like, I'm gonna, today I'm going to go kill it. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to feel great. Kill the day. And I get, yeah, and I, I get, you know, 35 steps into my walk and my feet and my calves and my ankles hurt so bad that it hurts to walk and it's mm. painful. And I end up cutting my walk short a lot and doing, and then like, and that sort of ruins the mood for the rest of the day on, on anything else. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I, you know, I do agree that there is a mental component and a spiritual um, component to it. But at the same time, there's like a physical yeah. component. So you have to sort you of like. You can pull the lever on both sides. And that's what I care about, which is. If I go and say that to you, that means just as much about like as far as like that means nothing in a sense. Like other than opening up some conscious why I don't spend too much time like going through it because until – so I think about this idea of like faith, love, and trust. Mm -hmm. So love is – there's a bunch of variables. These are my beliefs. So I don't know if it's right or wrong uh, or I don't know if it's correct. I don't know how far on the spectrum of correctness it is. 
So just to preface it with that, but I, I define love as seeing things clearly, right? If you love someone, love is continuing to show up, just making a decision to continue to show up, right? Yeah. And so part of that is to see something clearly, to see it for what it is, right? So to love someone is like, if I say I love you, it's because I see you for who you are. Mm-hmm. Not who I want you to be, not who I need you to be, not who I've heard you are, but for who you are, right? To feel loved is to feel seen. Yeah. Just one definition. Now, that's what we think about this is like, we start with trust. What does it mean to trust? Well, trust, what do we, what are things we trust, right? So there's like a trust, there's like a bank, which is like, okay, then my money's there. I know where it is. But like, I trust physical. So I trust that this chair, you can think about the definition of word based off of the vernacular and the situation, the lexicon of when it's used. And so I trust that this, this corner is sharp. I trust that this chair is going to support me. So trust starts from a very visceral, physical environment. Do I trust my body first and foremost? Do my fingers move? That If I go and touch my nose, do I trust that these things are repeatable and like dependable outcomes? Then I say, do I trust that if I've seen this before and this feels soft, it's going to be soft, right? If I touch that and my finger melts it off, I'd be like, it would hurt, right? So that's pain is the fact that our tr- our our internal sensations are not measuring up based off our external expectations, right? So that's why injuries are so debilitating in a sense. Something like a neuro, neuromuscular injury, like a, a brain, like I lost my sense of smell or my sense of my, any of my like eyesight or something yeah. like that or I had a concussion. I now, my memories, and so neurodegenerative diseases are so difficult because they train wreck and shipwreck our entire ability to trust our body. Because we can't trust ourselves. You look at babies, they're trying to figure out and look at things and they're developing, can I, can I stand up? Can I trust my feet are going to be there? Yeah. And that trust happens with first dominion over your body. So you're developing trust here. Once I have trust here, I can develop trust in external things. So I can develop trust in like relationships, in other people. And, the, and like you can have rock solid trust with Mark, for example, someone you've yeah. known forever. It's like because you have a certain amount of like as though you were with him, you would know him and feel him and see him clearly. right? So you have to mm-hmm. love something in order to trust it. And so we, our bodies, are the sum total of the experiences that have happened to us. Now, that can be emotional, it can be mental, it can be physical, it can be any number of things. But for many people, the thing that takes away, so if you think of like the injuries, take away that foundational level ability to trust our bodies, right? So for me, and I talked about this earlier with the shoulder. Yeah. I dislocated my shoulders. I lost a foundational component of my ability to trust. So I wouldn't straighten my arm up. I wouldn't <laughs> roll. trust it. Yeah. Exactly. It pop out again. And then when I lose that, that causes pain. So the pain of like, I can't trust this. So the pain of, it could be a mental, emotional, psychological, whatever, or physical pain. Like, oh, I'm losing that, right? But you trust it now, right? That's the hard part. And so how'd you get there? It. That that's it. So I have to, in order to trust it now, I have to love, meaning to see clearly how I got to where I am. Because I can, if I don't see, meaning if I don't look and say, you know, what are the circumstances that happen? I can't undo those. I can't fix those. I can't, or I can't correct for those. Meaning, you know, okay, I was only training, doing a bunch of bench press, not doing anything for the shoulder and health of that stuff. I wasn't, whatever it is, or my feet, or like, mm-hmm. I don't, if I don't see my past clearly, and this is where I think that your body holds on to certain key memories in a sense. So, like, memories that you'll have, like, landmark for whatever reason they stick around. I think those, because I've always said I have a bad memory just as like a label, right? Yeah. Um, but that's just because there's only a handful of things I would remember. And that could be like the time for me when I was left at a daycare center and my parents were late or something like that. Or maybe you give the f- feeling that like I'm not worthy if I don't show up and I'm perfect or whatever it is. There are certain things that stick out to you as foundational memories of like your body says this is important. We're not going past that. So it could be for any number of reasons. It could be like the thing that happened to you emotionally as a kid that kind of set the standard. And then those, they can set any number of things, like the, the actions you take, the, the injuries you have. It really doesn't matter because the physiology and the psychology all intermesh. 
The point being, it's very easier for me to walk through someone saying, okay, your knee hurts. Well, let's talk about it. How far did you have a previous injury? Did you get surgery? What shoes do you wear? So I basically understand so I can love you better to see you. And then I build in the history and say, okay, let's try these things. And then in that sense, it's much easier for me to go and fix that because that allows you to build up trust in your body again. Once you have trust, then you can start to develop trust in the intangible things like the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual, so to speak. And that can be something you develop in, let's say, other things. It could be psychedelics, coaching, journaling, uh, yeah. working that. So that's where you start there. So, But that requires faith, which is trust in a future, love in a future self yeah. or some. I forget there's a better way I of saying it. I keep trying to think of that, like just see the finish line. Look at these other people. They've done it. You know, like – Try to see that. But are you comparing yourself to them as opposed to loving where you came from and your past? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed, just if if I may, you've like – I would not know who Mark Bell was if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't know any of this stuff. And it's funny that like 12 years ago, I'm watching Bigger, Stronger, Faster as a teenager. and like, Yeah, yeah. And now we're sitting here talking. <laughs> but my point though is that you have an incredible – skill set and you are incredibly creative you're talented you're intelligent you. you are you have made some of the most foundational things and whether or not you get the credit for certain things like you've been part of instrumentally putting things on the radar for other people yeah yet i don't perceive you to be someone that acknowledges your own like the contribution in a sense and there's i could see it being potentially a middle child in some sense where you know from the story of mad dog being such a big guy doing this stuff and taking so many things and mark doing you know just little, his own thing it's like yeah in some sense, like, where's the credit? Like, I'm out here doing just as much as these guys, but no one acknowledges me. And that can create a defensiveness. And so yeah. when you go walk, your body gets – you're hypersensitive to the pain. And so you get that, and then it turns into a snowballing of like, well, last time I didn't pay attention to this, it went this, this, and this. And there's a snowballing assumption. And that's where it's difficult because that psychological thing creates a very protective mechanism, a sympathetic drive, which is when I do some body work on you or we go, yeah. you hold your breath, you tighten down, you look down as hard as you can. Yeah, I think also people don't realize in creating the – you know, films that I did, um, 99% of my life is rejection. Yeah. 99% of my life, even like, you know, every day I'm, I'm taking phone calls from producers. No, 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 no. Amazon said no. Netflix said no. Discovery said no. But you know, you know, he's been in here on some of the pitches. They've been fucking fantastic. They've been off the charts. Like I'd blow these people away and they sit there going, oh my God, do you have any questions? No, he answered everything to me. Like, okay, great. We're going to, we're going to nail this one. And then it's no, sorry, you can't do it. So I think that like the rejection gets you used to losing. I I hate to say that, but it gets you used to, you know, like um, my producer, one of my producers will call me and she'll say, you did so amazing. Like we're going to nail, I go, no, they're going to say no. Mm -hmm. And she's like, why? I'm like, cause they always do. Mm-hmm. Like that's just how it goes. Any and then anytime I've actually made a movie, guess how I made it by myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like I went out and just raised the money and went and made it, and then the same people that told me no came back and bought it. Yeah. So there's two it's lessons. Crazy. Here. It's like one of which is you get to say, I'm not valued in the world. No one sees this. There. If you take their external lack of validation or lack thereof, and allow that to be the defining story of your life, you would be someone that quit and did other things. But you could also look and say that you're one of the most resilient humans on the earth because you can get told 90 like, – it doesn't matter. Yeah, you get told no all the time and you just keep coming and back. And that's a skill set. But the thing is you can either allow yourself – like I can either trust my internal strength and say, fuck, I am one of the most resilient humans ever. Like this is fucking crazy. And every time they say no, good because it wasn't the right thing. You didn't appreciate it. You didn't see the yeah. value and it's another rep for me to get stronger. Or you can say, fuck – Maybe they are right. Maybe I don't have any value. So it's it's all is the perception of how we live it. And so the way I see for you, even though 
there's, this is what you're an interesting person because you still show – there's a part of you that still believes, that still has love, still has hope and faith and wants like wants to give. You have yeah. a big heart of love that's there because you keep showing up. But your body tells me that there's a whole different level of like you're expecting the next punch, the shooter drop in that sense. And yeah. so those two become conflicting pieces internally that create pain in the body because I want to do this stuff. Therefore, I go and do this, but my body, like, I'm afraid. So that fear and the love conflict one another. And you can either be, you know, and that's when I, it's like when you go on mushrooms, you, you aren't able to hold conflict. In a sense, I think that's when, the, yeah. when you expand it, you're able to just you have to su- submit in a sense and you have to just uh, let be, let it go. And so that's where you feel so open. I don't it's not fundamentally something different changes to your body. Your attention may be a little different, but I think fundamentally it allows us to say this is what I could feel like if I could fully just commit. And I think that's the power. Yeah, I think magic. I've realized like it's not really the substance. I have yes. this in me. Absolutely. This is in me. The more it's trips I've that, done, the more it, I feel like my life is a trip in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, I have this in me. I need to learn how to bring it out when I'm not taking these mushrooms. You know? And that's the thing is it's – so I would flip that around is you don't have to learn how to do it. You have to unlearn how to go to a defensive mechanism. Yeah. And some of those things – and that's where you can – you go back to the body. Which like is, you told me too, like your shoulder that's messed up, like my shoulder, yeah. Yeah, that I hold it, you know, like I'm holding everything. And yeah. I, I can even see that and feel that. Yeah. I feel a lot of times I'm like gritting my teeth. Yeah. Like I'm just – I'm a tense you're, person and I need like to like relax. all the time. Yeah. And it's hard. It's like how do you – Think about the three things you said. I'm a tense person. I need to relax. You labeled yourself and then you said mm-hmm. what you need to do. I And so just as like – I have a tendency to go to a protective safety mechanism of holding on attention because that's what my body feels safe doing and it's doing it to try and protect me so you can bring love and compassion to that. So there's, we can talk about there. – there is – we'll come back to the circle in a second. And the other side is um, I need to relax is giving my body a command saying that what you're doing is wrong. You need to do something different. Basically, you're like a little kid that's like I'm scared. It's like you, you need to not be scared. Like that doesn't work. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The two parts that the language you use matter and not so much that you can you can partly hack, hack these physiology by understanding the language. But it is it is a tell in the same sense how you talk about yourself. But what you want to think is like it's easy to get caught up because people will say I was I there are easy ways to speak in what I call. So I, growing up for me, it was more of a Southern Baptist Christian in some senses. And I've, I've uh, taken what I hope to say is I've taken the better parts of the faith and the spiritual side of that and let go of the religious parts. But again, that's my belief is subjective. I don't know. I can't say for sure. But what I would say, um, there's uh, there's people that use, I call it Christianese. I'm saved. The grace of everything. Like, what does that mean? Speak in real language. Because like, what does this actual, because these words have meaning. And when people go and they say, we have a shared vernacular about how we talk about stuff, but it's like, oh, I got tension. Like, let's say you're going to talk to Mark or any of the powerlifting yeah. guys come in. You got tension there. Do you feel your muscles? Do you feel the lat engage? It's like, wait, do, do I feel tension in my lat? What's a lat? You see how you skip over this, like, foundational piece of, like, what is this What is this supposed to be? It makes sense? Like, yeah. you skip this, like, that, like the education because we're all there. And that's good. You can do that because that allows you to get to a higher level. But it's never to forget that these words actually have meaning, right? So tension, lats, like these are things. So always like how would I explain this to someone that is actually like new? Because then like let me make sure that I'm actually not hijacking this word to mean something it's not. So that's the point of when you look at things like gratitude, which is or, like gratitude is the ability to expand and to channel gratitude. It's like let me find – it's a centering moment in this because in order to be grateful, I have to see things for what they are. Like I'm grateful that I can talk. 
I'm grateful that we have this conversation. I'm grateful that you are an intelligent man. It's like has these skills and like I'm grateful that Russell's over there looking beautiful and like is managing all this stuff. Like, and it's to be grateful is not to make up some fancy thing. It's like to truly be grateful is to say, actually, I'm not like, oh, you know, it's hot in here and it's, I can't believe this. It's like, that's me seeing a lack of something because I'm not seeing things from a bigger perspective, right? You know, a little kid gets there, it rains on their, I don't know, they drop their ice cream. It's like, yeah, but you had ice cream. It's like, and it's not the poo-poo and the emotions, but it's like to see things slowly from a bigger perspective. That's gratitude. But there's all kinds of things like hope. Um, You look at like bliss, enlightenment, love, faith, and then you go to the other side, fear, jealousy, um, uh, say uh, like, there's um, shame, blame, denial. Like these are all words that have meanings, but they also actually correlate to our physical state of our body. So are we holding on to tension? Are we holding on to pain, holding on to problems? And those you can test somebody's calibration for the muscle, say how well are you doing it. So for you, there's a lot of like defensive and fear and anger, which is you can – we can walk. It's power versus – if you're interested and you want to look this stuff up, yeah. power versus force. And, and you know what, what I noticed, and we, we're going to have to go in a minute, I think, right, Russell? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, what what I noticed is that what I, what I don't like is it the pain turns me into somebody that I'm not, and I can feel that, and I hate that. Now, the, this is like where I, the archetype I really of Hulk Hogan. Like, no, Hulk, uh, what's Bruce Banner? The Hulk? The Hulk. The incredible yeah. Hulk. So this is where you start to look at this fascinating because these are other superheroes, but they're superheroes to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's like you have both those capacities, but it really, this is the beautiful thing of these Marvel stories is comics of like, they actually tell an archetype of something that relates to us, which is why we go there. And so that Hulk of like, you, you wouldn't know, like me when I'm angry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what like, that's what you see is like, oh, you, and then if I say, hey, I love you, I appreciate you. And I saw this nice stuff. Like part of you wants to believe it. The other part is like, yeah, but you don't really know me. Yeah. And that's the defensive part. Cause it's like, yeah, but what if I do really know you and I still love you? Yeah. And that's part, that's like, I can't, I can't accept that. And that's where people have a hard time with that. Cause it's a very conflicting for the way you've just learned to operate. It's tough. And that's where, like, I just think, like, even, even, like, I'll be in pain, like, just physical pain, flipping through Instagram, and things will trigger me, like, from somebody I like and I'm friends with and I follow. Like, maybe I'll see your post and be like, Graham doesn't know what he's talking about. Of course not. And then I yeah. go, why, why am I acting like this? You judge oh, yourself because, because I'm in pain, though. Too. Exactly. Like, because it's attracted. It, I'm like turning it into something else and something yep. dirty. And I, like, it's great to notice that, though, because mm-hmm. then you can that's, like reverse out of that's it. That's the classic, though. Your superpowers, you have, you're creative, you have a very fast mind, you're very, you're very fast thinker. You know, I'm sensitive, right? People are always trying to label my sensitivity as a, as a flaw. My sensitivity gives me the ability to perceive things in other people that yep. they wouldn't otherwise yeah. notice. The ability to have compassion for a man or woman that most people don't notice. Like, you have so many superpowers. It's up to your consciousness to, is are you going to be a superhero or a supervillain? Yeah. Right? And, and you have, and, and they both, the duality of man lives within inside of all of us, right? Yeah. yeah. And we just have to put our focus to take... To take our our God given strengths, which which you and, and your brothers have had many, and 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 that's why and that's why you guys have made such an impact yeah. on the world around you. And and but I don't want to discredit what you deal with with pain. This last six months or so, I you know pain pain is it's a paradigm shifter. It is an absolute paradigm shifter. It's but, a teacher. But your you know how you're saying to go through and sort of work 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 it out of you. Yeah. When, Just to pay possible. attention. Yeah, that's a beautiful what you just said there, and it's it's it, like it's really really true to a deep core. And to wrap this up, just as like a a takeaway for like why this is valuable, it's like 
it's easy to just dismiss this stuff as like, oh, yeah, that's up there because someone listen. And if you're in pain and you're feeling this, you're like, well, that's stupid. I wouldn't even bother. But it, it just is as simple as starting to – and this is what I think if I were to pick these apart for you, both of you, when you can label it, it means you're attending to it. You pay attention to it. Notice the words you speak. Then you can start to just, just observe yourself for a while. Don't judge. Just like yeah. ah, observe. And then if you do judge, just observe that you judge. Like that's interesting. And if you could just start to say like of yourself, if you saw if Russell flipped off and flipped out, ran out, this is stupid. You you know you can either yeah you can either react and say what are you doing? I can't believe. It. Aren't you grateful and get mad at him? Or you can respond saying hmm that's interesting. I wonder what's going on. Yeah, that response gives you power. I I also think that a superpower is having pain. Like honestly, like the amount of people that I've helped get off of drugs, the amount of people that I've helped. Um, get out of pain, the amount of people I've helped uh, lose weight, all these things, it's really because I was in pain you and I had that. to figure out ways to get around it and then also like have compassion for them. Like I'm not going to – You, you know, can empathize for them. This is when people miss up sympathy versus empathy. Empathy is like you empath. I can under – I am in your situation. If I've never been in your situation, I can have sympathy. I can have compa- – I can ex- – compassion, which is like I, I, I can understand intellectually that that sucks. I can have sympathy and say, you know, I feel for you, but I can't empathize. And people that have been through these situations, like for it to be overweight, to lose that, you can empathize with people and all the things that you don't get. You can empathize with people in that pain. And that's where it's like pain doesn't have to be – we don't like it. Therefore, we think it's a bad thing. But pain is a teacher. Yeah. And eventually you get to the point where it te- when you learn the lesson it's teaching you, then you can transcend to doing things for pleasure and creating. And that's where your greatest ideas will come. In one sense. last thing before you go. Like you're yeah. one of the only people that have come here besides like Stan Efforting for like a month. You know, like spent time here with Mark. And I was just wondering uh, if you uh, learned anything or picked up anything from being around – you know, being around us or Mark or whatever. Oh, my God. It's every day is a – I'll say just from all the things I would have picked up, uh, like each of you have something interesting and, and unique that I'm learning. Uh, from him specifically, there's a certain level of um, – when people think about people that are very successful, they think, oh, they probably have a morning routine. They have all the stuff down. It's like watching him around his family, like in just the way he orients himself with kids and chaos. And we were at the, we were at the house, the <laughs> beach house, and it was like a bunch of kids, a bunch of relatives – just that ability to just go with the flow of the ocean, like to maintain your identity in the face of other people, but then just to not get caught up and react. It's like something that is a slight aloof disconnectedness of like I'm not going to just get overly involved and take ownership of this stuff. Also, it's I'm not going to worry about that stuff because it doesn't serve me well. But just for him, it's focusing on what's actually important, right? From So does that make sense? Like for yeah. him, it's like just does it really matter? And so basically to take what's important and to let go of the rest of it, if it doesn't really matter, it's not worth thinking and caring about. From you, what I've noticed is there's a certain level of, you know, you, you do a really good job without thinking about it as like how to take this and then what if I pull back the constraints on this thing? Every single thing I teach you and like you have, the, you have your bullshit filter and you kind of like take it, you know, let me think on it, sit on it. But then it's like you do it and you're always playing with ideas. You're always like. Yeah, but what if we did it like this way? And that's why you're so creative because you see you have a you can see things and just like immediately take them and then rotate it just a slight different twist and then you get something that most people don't see. Yeah. And the other side is it's, it's not always better. And if it's not better, then you go back to the original. But the fact is that it was a thought. You tried and, it, yeah. Yes. And eventually it's it's the whole like entrepreneurs rarely entrepreneurial efforts rarely succeed, but entrepreneurs themselves rarely rarely fail. The other thing I've seen from you that I think is beautiful is that when you see people that come in, just like Everyday Joes that no one else would really care much to come in the store, ask a question. Like you will literally pour like 
anybody that is even slightly open and perceptive to like learning, you're just like, fuck, I'm going to walk you. And you have such a strong desire to help and to grow. And I think so much of that they is because- They walk in looking for a slingshot and they leave with a full diet plan and like yeah. <laughs> everything. But part of that- Part of it, I think we treat people how we want to be treated in yeah. some sense. And so part of you desperately wants to be loved and appreciated and someone to look at you and say, I see the light and the value in you. You can fucking yeah. do this. Therefore, you pour that into other people so much. But then you ironically don't. I also try to, to teach you. people it's easy to be nice. Exactly. It's really but, easy to be nice to people. Yeah. And that's so ironically, you do that to yourself, though. Yeah. Like that's the ironic, you know, the, huh. the whole Jesus thing. Love others. <laughs> love others as we yeah. love ourselves. Like love yourself. Love one another. Love yourself. And since we end up loving others as we wish we could love ourselves, but it's like ironically that comes ends up making us resentful because we end up going from an empty tank. But it's like what I would find that you have the capacity for immense love, immense attention, immense teaching, immense coaching, Thank and it's you. beautiful. I, I just would love to see you just turn that to yourself and bring that yeah. very strong. Like, buddy, you're doing fucking amazing. Yeah, and and, and you're doing amazing too, and we love having you here. Well, thank so, you. So, uh, before we run out of here. Um, Tell us where everybody can find you. So um, let's say the main places, uh, TikTok, Instagram uh, are at the Barefoot Sprinter. Um, and then I've got a podcast in YouTube. So I'm work that is going to be a more serious focus afterwards. But um, that'll be the uh, like it's Graham Tuttle, G-R-A-H-A-M-T-U-T-T-L-E. And the main thing, if I can encourage you to do anything, I do a course at the beginning of every month. It's a month-long thing to fix your feet, ankles, lower legs, everything from the pelvic floor down. It's called Ready to Run. It's not about running. It's just about getting restoring your feet so you can walk, you can touch your toes, put your socks on. That's like the one call to action if you could do that. Not because I'm trying to make money, but because I think it's so valuable to restore your feet, and it's it's helping a lot of people, and I want to get people back to their life. So Let's do it. All right, buddy. Thank you. Perfect. Boom. That was awesome. There's more of a psychology, like a um, therapy session in there. Graham the philosopher.